This is a podcast hosted by two born witches in the American South, Winter from Louisiana and Amber from Alabama. We talk about our experiences and ordeals navigating the human rights campaigns and political circles we've witnessed. Welcome to The Demonized. My name is Winter, Winter Claire. I was born, raised, and still live in South Louisiana. I want to use the podcast, this podcast, to give myself a voice that for various reasons I feel has been silenced with my contributing to that. I'm a lifelong liberal who was a Democrat for many years, and now I consider myself in a, in a political wasteland. I am an advocate for the rights of female human beings, girls and women. I've done a lot of different jobs in my life. I've done a lot of different volunteer advocacy work in my life. And all of that has brought me here. My name is Amber. I am someone who currently has a really lovely life, a very quiet life. I'm married to a physicist and I'm currently a stay-at-home cat mom. So life is good. My my earliest memories, my entire life, I've wanted to be an advocate for women and girls. Despite a difficult childhood, being raised as an, an, as an only child by a cruel, narcissistic, abusive, sociopath of a mother, I still always wanted to help others. My early childhood and adolescence and early 20s were basically spent surviving, went to all-girls private high school and as a poor child of an abusive parent and a nerd and an introvert, I stuck out like a sore thumb and um, was always bullied. Managed to find a decent husband first time around, put myself through college. And then first day of my last semester of college, when I got home from work, my mother was there telling me that she was dying from stage four lung cancer. So I ended up being her caretaker and that ate up another couple of years of my life. And then I went into a deep clinical depression, divorced, uh, lived on the verge of bankruptcy for many years, somehow managed to turn that around and got myself into years of therapy with a really good therapist, a social worker who I, I remain forever grateful to and finally learned to love myself, um, accept myself for who I was, stop blaming my childhood for the problems in my life. And pretty much one of the first things I did when I figured out that I was worthy of love was started to do what I could to advocate for women and girls. And I was fortunate enough to be able to do that for a few years um, in a variety of, of ways, which, you know, will, will definitely make itself into future episodes of the podcast. Once again, found myself like I did in high school, kind of traveling with the in crowd. Again, felt like I stuck out, you know, that I was that I was different and always on the outskirts, the outside. And in about 2016, I really started to feel like I wasn't that that my time in those places were was over for a variety of reasons and have spent the last few years pre at premenopausal and menopausal um exploring the past phases of my life what I've given up to remain true to myself what I've 
contributed what I what I feel have been my failures and it would be it would be lovely to talk about the, those things with somebody like you Amber and um maybe guests at some some point in the future but to to talk about those experiences that I've had and that we've had as as personal and as representative of the experiences of, of lots of people who have been outsiders and how we navigate society and society as a whole. Um, if people listen to this, fantastic. If I'm talking into the internet, that's that's fine too, because I'm 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 speaking in in I'm I'm saying out loud what I want to put out into the the universe. Mm-hmm. So one of the most powerful phases of my life was when I was able to be a clinic escort and a clinic escort coordinator for the abortion clinic that is no longer open in New Orleans. Um, that was that was through an organization that I'm no longer uh, affiliated with. It was incredibly powerful because we were on the front lines of women being able, women and girls being able to access uh, access abortion health care. And we were doing this at one of the only three clinics that were remaining in Louisiana, which of course were immediately shut down when uh, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And we were there because there were protesters, uh, anti-choice protesters at the clinic, and the clinic had requested us to be there for the patients coming in. And so we trained in 2014 for uh, a time when Operation Rescue Operation Save America came in to New Orleans for their conference. And then we really weren't asked, you know, we were there at the behest of the clinic and then we weren't really active until the fall of say 2015. Oh, my dates are wrong. I don't know. But anyway, at at some point later, uh, we became uh, much more active with the clinic. They reached out to us and asked us to provide clinics, uh, clinic escorts weekly. And the head of the organization at the time at, reached out to me and asked if I would coordinate a program that would get escorts out there. So I started with a list of the escorts that had been trained uh, back in the day because we were the ones that had the experience and then started uh, organizing training classes advertised, you know, on social media. Um, We had a vetting process to, you know, uh, make sure that we didn't have anybody, you know, anybody was welcome to to come to the trainings, but we of course also had to be very careful of people that might come in and try to disrupt the the training events. Mm -hmm. And I managed that for about two and a half years before I stepped away from the organization. And without a doubt, those those experiences were, it, it was an honor 
and a privilege to do it. It was incredibly humbling. And regardless of, of anything in the aftermath, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change those days at all. I would do it again in a heartbeat if I could. Um, stories. And um, the other thing that's been very powerful is my work with uh, a international menstruation uh, supply provider and educator. Um, they uh, make and provide reusable menstrual kits to girls and women in developing nations um, and on an as-needed basis if they get requests from specific communities. It's all volunteer-driven. Volunteers make the kits and um, the, the, the volunteer groups either, sh either distribute them locally if there's a need or ship them other places where they have uh, established relationships with women in the cities and towns and villages. They also have an entrepreneurship program where um, women in, in places can be trained to make the kits and then they can sell them um, to other, you know, to other people, to other women in need around them. And uh, because New Orleans had such high levels of poverty, the New Orleans chapter realized that there was a need for education and distribution right there in our backyard. And so um, before the pandemic, we had started organizing classes where we would go talk to girls in school and give them a, a talk about menstrual health and the change, changes that their body would go through through puberty. And we would also provide the reusable kits for them with instructions on how to use them. Um, that was very interesting because there's so much shame and stigma attached around it. Um, it took a little bit of getting used to on my end to be able to go in and say, okay, girls, we're going to, you're going to hear words like vulva, vagina, clitoris, <laughs> anus, ovaries, you know, and, and the girls would either giggle or, or like hide their faces in shame or put their heads down. And I would always follow that up with, you know, we need to have a frank, honest education, a talk about this. And the best way to do that is to know what their names are called. I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, talk about your vagina and call it a hoo-ha. And that would get a little laugh, you know? And so there were lots of, there were lots of, of amazing experiences came that came from that as well. Um, I don't believe that the New Orleans chapter is active anymore. I've reached out a few times and I haven't gotten any response. I would like to start that up again, just because there's such a need for it. And, and now that, you know, there, Louisiana has always been in desperate need of age appropriate, comprehensive sex education. And particularly now that women, girls and women no longer have the option of abortion, not that they had it easy before Roe v. Wade was overturned. It was still this, it was still made very difficult and expensive to get, but you know, that's something that I, that I still think about and am passionate about and would like to begin in some way again. And I've got like <laughs> probably 60 
kits ready to distribute. And honestly, I've tried to I've tried to get people to take them, and I can't I can't get like libraries or shelters or anything to take them, which is super confusing. But so those those are those are two of the advocacy volunteer things um, that I was involved in that were incredibly powerful on a personal level and I felt I felt that was it was very impactful in the lives of the women and the girls that I was talking to and, and assisting as well. I wish we'd had someone like you in Catholic school. Not that they would have allowed you in, but I wish we had you tell us because what they did to us at St. Bernard in Coleman, Alabama was separate the girls from the boys, of course. And maybe sometimes in some instances that's healthy, but this was done deliberately to keep the girls ignorant. We were basically told we were whores. We were told we were evil. Um, I'm not going to go into all the stuff that leads to adoption trafficking, but we were told the normal stuff that they tell girls like, you'll rip open, we'll take your baby. It'll be given to a good Christian mom and not you. And this was told to us by a tall blonde woman with an ugly hatchet face. And she was so skinny, you know, the type A type. She looked very uh, like a, like a witch, like a witch, a hatchet witch from a fairy tale, a witch in a bad way. Not the kind of witch that we are. <laughs> much like a evil queen from a fairy tale. Okay. Like the evil queen, like um, think of, someone like bloody mary or what what was the woman in eastern europe that bathed in the blood of young girls long yeah yeah she had that long hatchet face and real skinny you know type a type and i don't know i, I she, she must have dyed her hair a, you know a blonde to look like Aryan christian nation because i don't think it was natural <laughs> <laughs> but in and she said all these ugly things to the girls and scared us and said abortion was evil. And, and I was the one who would never wear that little foot pin that they gave you to wear in Catholic school. And she got right at my face and said, we are for life here. And I was like, no, I'm not. Mm -hmm. I just sat there's like, nope, you can be, but I'm not. And she couldn't stand that because I wouldn't argue with her, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't cower to her either. Mm -hmm. Like it was just like, nope, not going to take that bait and you will not change me. And, uh, I was just unmovable and unshakable. And but the weird thing about what she did to us was she basically told the girls just enough about our system. Nothing about period sanity, um, sanity, sanitation. <laughs> <laughs> sanity is a good word too, because they would treat it like it was an insane thing when it's actually a natural biological thing. Like you were telling the girls that you were able to mentor, but she, the boys, she taught the boys all about their biology and ours. But she, I came to find out because I actually took a poll and me being me, I went around just up straight. I mean, I just, I just asked everybody. I asked people who had her before and the boys in my class. And I'm like, so what did you learn about? Because this is what we've got. And I want to know what you got. Did she say the word penis to you or vagina or both? I mean, I, and they were like, Amber, I'm like, no, no, I want to know. Because I'm, I'm, I'm going to pass it on up. I'm going to tell my parents. And I thought they, not that they would give a shit because they were so scared of sex. I'm going to tell everybody. And I did. And of course, everyone was like, oh, Amber, you're just such an activist. You're like, you're like that Jesse character on Saved by the Bell. And when they realized they couldn't, they, they couldn't change me or scare me, I became like a joke. Like, oh, that's just Amber. Oh, that's just, Am I mean, I, I mean, and, but I never did anything bad. Like I didn't like, I wasn't a troublemaker, but I was a very uh, activist, you know, moral person in a secular moral way. And I was always pointing out how evil dogma is and 
And, um, and even back then, I think they used to call me a witch, but I think the word they were really looking for was atheist. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't want to say that, but I remember in, in biology class and I didn't think kids should be dissecting in high school. And I'm not, I mean, my first foray into activism, into advocacy, into a cause was animal rights. And I was just against that anyway. I'm like, okay, these are not med students. We don't know if these, these frogs were ethically obtained. And I I really question this anyway. We have have now computer models. I don't think this is great. This is unnecessary. These are boys and girls that don't know how to behave. They're, they're, They're on their way to adulthood. They're in the in that stage, that murky stage between childhood and adulthood. And I just don't think the average adult has enough maturity to handle something like, you know, looking at a body, a live body that way. And so I just walked out. I just walked out of biology. I was a one person protest (laughs) and walked out. And I always did shit like that. And I ended up being president of a club I founded, the Ecology Club. So I don't know, just thinking back how grateful I would have been to have met someone like you because I didn't have anybody like you. And, you know, I ran into more bumps being the way I am because I didn't run into somebody like you at that age. Does that make sense? Like, I I, would have been like, I would have hung on every word you said and been like, what do we do next? Let's rally the troops. Come on, comrade. (laughs) You know, that made me think of one of the things that I ended up telling the girls was that my mother was a nurse and I learned things about my periods from the class that I took to teach them that I didn't learn from my mother, the nurse. Oh, wow. And so, you know, that's, that's a, a a perfect example of somebody who should have made an effort to provide education about what was happening to my body. And, and I, and then when I took the class to teach them, I was already in premenopause. So I spent an entire life menstruating without knowledge that I was blessed enough to be able to give to a couple of handfuls of girls over the years. And, and in all fairness, that's just me the organization itself is incredibly powerful and, and spreads this information around the world. It's what was the name of that again? The name of the word days for girls. Okay. There have been times, in fact, most of my younger years where I was demonized and I was demonized because I was nothing like the people in the small Alabama town that my family moved to when I was 12 years old. I was later demonized in undergrad because I wouldn't go along with the radical feminist, even though, you know, I am very much a pro-choice democratic socialist. I would not get on board with what you now call wokeism. I saw this coming on over 20 years ago, and I can tell you how it started from my own observations and life experience and how it has evolved into what it is now. I was demonized in graduate school. I was mistaken for being conservative simply because I was older than the other students. I had stayed out for a few years and worked and married. And by the time I went to grad school, I was in my mid to late twenties. I didn't dress like I was in a scene. I wasn't a scene kid. You know, I was, you know, just wearing jeans and t-shirts and and, um, just simple things like that, or maybe a sundress if it was really hot because I'm in Alabama again. I was demonized as conservative simply because I was quiet 
I didn't express political views because I was in a very bad marriage in a very bad place that imploded during my graduate years. So I've been there and, and also in public schools that I started out in and Catholic school, I was always the odd kid out because I, I was that one empathic, gentle child that loved all creatures that kids would bully, but also kids would use as a crutch. I was the kid that the teachers leaned on to help with any kid that had any sort of um, disability, but be it mental or physical or psychological. I was, was normally put at the table to help these children because I had patients where the other kids did not. And the teachers were always mystified by this. But the truth is, is that I had a sister, a younger sister at home who had mental issues and she's had them for most of her life. Um, and I was kind of groomed to be in that sense, a doormat, but I didn't turn out that way. I, I never was someone who grew accustomed to leaning into victimhood. We've all been victimized. And at one point in our life, we'll at least feel like we've been victimized. And that's not a good place to stay. And I knew that. So I was very grounded in that sense. And I had natural boundaries because like winter, I was an introvert. Like winter, I liked to read. And like winter, I looked for solace and intellectual things. And I think nature. And I think that's one of the things that drew us together is because, you know, we are, you know, about a decade apart in years. But the thing is, I think we, we would have if we'd been siblings, it would have made sense. Oh yeah, those two are definitely related because I don't think we had family members that were very much like us, you know? And, and I, I, I think we both did some time in Catholic school. And, and the thing is, is that I did start out in public school where I started kindergarten in Ohio. My family moved a little bit. I spent a large chunk, the most memorable part of childhood in a little suburb. Now it's a suburb, but it was a town, Farragut. It was right outside the Great Smoky Mountains, and I grew up by a large forest. The neighborhood backed up to it. It was all wild, and I, I had one of those last childhoods where I was what they call now a free-range child, <laughs> and I was taught by a family that was very rural, and my family, being from Alabama, both sides of it, knew the names of birds and trees and plants, and, and we grew vegetables, and, and I just I grew up knowing these things that I don't think people know commonly. And I, I, I think that I just thought everyone knew how to do these things. And, and I realize now that they don't. Um, and that's, that's something I've realized as I've grown up that people know when or now we're talking about this today, they, um, people, people know the names of labels more so than they know the different types of trees that are in their yard. So that's, that's been interesting interesting observation as I've aged. I, I think that like winter, I've always been into activism in my own way it started with animals I started my first little march save the animals club when I was in the third grade I started a neighborhood club save the animals club um when I Brian and I first were married we volunteered for domestic domestic rabbit rescue group Alabama ears which I think is no longer active and we volunteered for mama cat rescue I I've weaned litters of kittens I've been a surrogate mother for kittens I've uh you know, save lots of feral cats. We still are involved in our own personal cat rescue. When we see a cat, it seems like cats just come to us. <laughs> and I think, you know, that sort of, that love for cats and nature and, and having an herb garden at the age of 12, 
definitely grounded me in nature. And, and so my first inclination toward being an advocate for anything were for those who couldn't speak at all, or at least not speak in the sense that humans find intelligent. I, and personally, I don't think humans are intelligent enough to understand the intelligence of animals and plants. We're just now understanding the network under the forest floor, the mycelial network. We just now finally get it. So it's something that I intuitively knew as a child. And my, my thing was always being a voice for nature. And I remember one project I did, I entered a science fair in fifth grade and in my, in my project was on deforestation back in the like 1989. In 1990, I was talking about how we were, the, the planet, we were losing our trees. And that definitely set me on a path where I accidentally became a human rights activist. <laughs> After we left Knoxville, I ended up in a Catholic school system because we moved to a very bigoted, small Alabama town that was ran by the Klan. And this was the 1990s. We moved there in 89. And um, even in the 90s, it was Klan ran, the Ku Klux Klan. That's the Klan I'm talking about. And uh, it was weird. There, I have a lot of things that I still can't talk about from that period because it's, it's very weird. It, the people were weird. And I'm not saying that I saw people running around those bed sheets. I didn't. But it was just this, everything you hear every day. And that taught me that. I knew that I could never be a conservative, no matter how you define conservative. And I could never be Christian because I saw white nationalism back then before it blew up into Trumpism today. So both sides have really hurt us. And I've seen it coming from both sides. I've, I've been demonized by the right because I was nothing like these people from Alabama. And I was demonized by the left because I wouldn't get on board with their gender studies agenda. And they're, they're, they're very, very far extreme stuff. So um, it's been a very emotionally abusive life taking all these blows. And, and I don't think that I would be the person I am today if I hadn't have become that human rights activism, activist, sorry, activist. And I'd like to say something a little bit about the human rights campaign that I ended up on accidentally back in 2015, not that long ago. I had a YouTube channel called Southern Bell Humanism. I allowed women who had been manipulated, gaslighted, abused, used by adopters and the private adoption mill industry, privatized adoption agents, attorneys, and private, private social workers. These women had been manipulated and abused and did not know that they were basically being hunted for their the fetuses inside them that later they birthed into babies and these babies were seized by these very wealthy people. Adoption trafficking is something that happens on an international scale. Several, there's actually been a couple African countries that have shut down their adoption markets because of human rights violations. And the United Nations now lists forced adoptions as human rights violation. It is discussed in the rights of... Um, the rights of the child and the rights of the, their declaration of human rights. The United Nations Declaration of Human Rights addresses this. And Alabama was one place and has always been one place because the South was huge on adoption trafficking, especially during the baby scoop era, the mid-century. Alabama is one place that this continues to this day. And it's coming from an agency, a private agency out of Mobile, 
I was named in the slap suit in 2017 because I allowed these women on a channel. I was named with all the major media media outlets, and I don't think I can say their name because the slap suit is unlawfully sealed through the Birmingham courts, the Birmingham city courts. It is a civil lawsuit, a slap suit, slap with two Ps, and we'll provide the definition for that. And I will talk about that at a later day. It's not, it's just a civil lawsuit. However, it does drain your family of resources and money. It happens to activists, environmental activists, human rights activists. It's just very rich, wealthy people and their attorneys abusing the law to hide the fact they committed a human rights violation. They don't want anyone given a podium or a platform, and they don't want the media exposing what they've done to mothers who are good mothers or good women. They've, they've never been in trouble with the law. They're, they're not drug addicts. They're not any way they, that they would paint them. And again, and I need to say this, this is the private adoption industry. This is not CPS or foster care or DHR adoptions. I'm going to say that again because they try to confuse and conflate those two very different things. I am talking about the private domestic adoption industry, the baby selling mills. I'm not speaking of DHR cases, foster care and or CPS. I'm going to say that again. This is not about DHR cases. This is private. These are privatized money, cash being handed over between the parties. And that's why it's hard to to get a price on these children, even though there's lots of exposés, you can find it on C on ABC, you can find it on Fox News affiliates, you can find it on Huffington Post. Individual whistleblowing blogs are out there, blogs that vary that that, that state the facts, that state institutes like the Donaldson Institute, which was a research institution that researched the social ramifications and consequences of adoptions, privatized adoptions not not DHR cases and it, there's a whole world out there that very few people know about because it is the most underreported human rights violation adoption law varies from state to state there's very few federal regulations or laws that oversee it it's the wild west of law adoption law is the wild west when it comes to law it's adoption law that really is hard to understand because each state ha has loopholes and provides ways to make money on human flesh, whether it's, it's the woman being used, her body being used or the baby being sold. A good example of them would be um, Scott Peterson. Peterson is spelled S E N not S O N his last name and winter will link all this. We'll link all this, but, he is going to do time in Utah, Arizona, and uh, Arkansas because he basically committed Medicaid fraud by bringing women over from the Marshall Islands and forcing them to give birth and taking their babies and selling them to mostly rich white people who could, were infertile and couldn't have babies of their own for various reasons. And this is this this is just one case, but it's a huge big case that blew up that was reported on. However. A lot of people, when this hits the press, a lot of people ignore it because there's a lot of adopters out there who realize that they got children through very unethical means and very shady means. And they didn't ask enough questions. Now, the FBI got him on Medicaid fraud initially because that's what they could prove when they were able to dig deeper. He was charged with child trafficking, sex trafficking and, and forced prostitution. 
He had many of these women kept in a home. They never received any sort of health care for themselves or a prenatal care for the embryo, the fetus or whatnot. And they were immediately separated from their child and either sent back to these camps. One was a prostitution camp for workers in the Marshall Islands. It's, it's just a really horrific story. But this is just one example. This is one example that I talked about and blogged about it. It is not the big case out of Alabama that I was named for in a slap suit with major media outlets. But that'll be an episode all of its own. Now, I, I never had a dog in this fight, this human rights campaign. I'm not an adopter or an adoptee. I'm not a woman, a mother of loss to adoption trafficking. And that's what they are called, mothers of loss to adoption trafficking. I'm not, I'm not either of those three. I didn't adopt a child. I'm not an adoptee. And I'm not a mom of loss. I'm just an eyewitness. I, 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 I was an eyewitness and my husband, because we were both raised Catholic, to these forced adoptions of young of, of babies from young girls who were forced to give birth, whether they wanted to give birth or not. And a lot of this went through Catholic charities. We witnessed this. So it wasn't anything that went through the US foster care system or the state foster care system. This was this was basically a human rights violation that religion imposed upon Americans, American teenage girls. And we witnessed this as young Catholic kids, the forced adoption of forced birth against teenagers. This happened to teenage girls. We witnessed it, and it's happened to older women as well. It's happened on every continent, mostly in Christian countries, because Christians were the great originators of adoption trafficking. This country, America, has a history of it, a very ugly history with the First Nations. It first occurred, the first forced adoptions were with the First Nations when the white settlers came over here. So motherhood has never been honored in this country, even though we shame women for choosing to be child-free. Motherhood has never been honored unless you do it the Christian way, the white nationalist Christian way. One of the things that I was thinking about that struck me when you were just telling, retelling that is the fact that when we first spoke of it, I was struck by the fact that you, that no one in the left leftist circles seem to see what was happening with the women. Mm -hmm. And right. I, I don't know if this is something that you said or if it's something that I said in my head and, and just carry that memory. And I, I remember thinking, well, this, that's because they're, they wanted to keep their children. They're the, the wrong yeah. kind of victims. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I think I told you, um, I ran up against the left because a lot of these women did want to keep their children. They didn't want to have an abortion. And that's what being pro-choice is about, right? Like some, some were forced to give birth, but some were not. Some actually made the choice, but their families still forced it upon them by making them homeless. I mean, I, I have two acquaintances that were kicked out of their house and that's how they ended up at literally a shelter or a friend's house. And that's how, why they were forced to, the, the agency actually hunted them down. They hunted them down like dogs. Let that sink in. That happened in this century. Um, I'd have one friend from grad school when she was somehow in the 1990s, the boomer generation changed the age of adulthood to 19 in the state of Alabama. So her first year of college, she got pregnant and she had been sexually 
I mean, abused. I know she'd been assaulted and raped before and all that. I'm not sure what happened here, but she found herself pregnant and she, she can't really, she writes poetry about it. It's not something she's going to talk about on a podcast like this. So I'm not going to, of course, I would never disclose any of these people's names, but I know her. Like I, I know her. She's a friend. And I'm one of the only people that know exactly what she went through. She was basically kept captive by her family, forced to give birth in a Baptist church, privately arranged an adoption. They weren't even Catholic. They were Baptists. It was a Southern Baptist, of course. Um, to this day, to this day, she has mental health issues. Now, her psychiatrists and psychologists know this, but you know what they've labeled it? Just bipolar, not trauma. Because I'm an ala fucking Bama. Yet another example of the dismissal mm -hmm. of women's health but you were exactly right i did say to you i did say to you that the left told me that that was just too bad that they made the wrong choice and they weren't worth taking up for that the girls who chose to have their children were probably christian and wrong because they they made a choice not to have an abortion and I'm like, well, I thought the whole fucking reason for being pro-choice is, is is you get a goddamn choice. Right. Okay. I mean, where where's the fucking choice in that? They're like, well, they well, they made the wrong how do you make the wrong goddamn you sound like a goddamn evangelical Christian? And that's my thing about wokeism and the, and the hard left. They sound like evangelical Christians. I'm seeing the same mindset from them manifest differently, but it's the same mindset that I saw in the bigoted people of Coleman, Alabama as a child. I'm seeing the same thing. And that's why this podcast is so important to me because I need that to be driven home to people out there who are feel like they're lost in the middle of a wasteland between these two fringe extremes that somehow have gained the largest, biggest voice in society. They do not need the microphone. Take it away from both of these fuckers. <laughs> but and, and another thing about bumping it up against a far left when it came to adoption trafficking a lot of them are limousine liberals. A lot of these adopters, these baby buyers are limousine liberals. Think about it. They're the people who go to grad school or they're actresses. They're people who just wait a little bit too long, but they do want children. They want it all. Maybe they're going to have it all in life. And if they can't use their own uterus, by God, they're going to use yours because you're just poor white trash and they want the white baby. So they're going to look for a white trash girl. And where do they come to the American South? And the ironic thing is that they don't even get these limousine neoliberals that they don't even fucking get. They, that's, that will never be their child. It will never be their bloodline or, the, or their genetics. They are, they're basically housing and promoting and educating and pampering the bloodline of sharecroppers. <laughs> And uh, as a sharecropper's granddaughter, I find that funny. And maybe that will have the last laugh on them. Maybe that's their poetic justice. But now we also got to say this. A lot of these limousine liberals that be doing this baby buying, be the gay men and the gender studies people who can't have children. And well, they're entitled to a family too. Actually, no, they're not. They're not. They're not entitled to a family because that means someone else's family. If they can't have their own biological child, they're not entitled to yours. You're only entitled to your own shit, people. What comes out of your vagina? You're not entitled to what comes out of someone else's vagina. Let's just be real, real here. And that's and that's what they don't get. And these are liberals who are all for human rights. Well, my God, they ain't. So that was a slap in the face from the far left. 
when all these gender study people just think they need to raise babies. Well, if you want to be a member of that, of those communities, why the hell are you doing the straight thing? Why do you want a family and 2.5 kids in a two-car garage? Isn't that what we all want to be free from? Shit, I'm heterosexual and I don't fucking want 2.5 kids. That shit costs too much money. <laughs> so you are exactly correct. I did say that to you. You, you, and, and that it's not just something you made up. I, I, I did say that, and that has traumatized me. <laughs> but the moment I heard it over and over, like, well, they made the wrong choice, so they're not worth it. They're Christian or they're conservative, so they're not worth worth taking up for. So what? So Christian conservative women, these young teenagers who they were really just raised that way. It's not like they made a conscious choice. They get to have their babies taken away and given to your limousine liberal friends because they're Christian conservative. Mm -hmm. I didn't sign up for that shit. When this is why I don't call myself a liberal y'all. I call myself a democratic socialist because I don't like the word liberal. So I'm call me a democratic socialist and the style of Bernie Sanders, Truman, Eisenhower, the new deal. In fact, give me another motherfucking new deal because we need one right now. Inflation is getting out of hand, has been getting out of hand. Yeah, so you were correct. And I and I was demonized by the left, painted as some conservative, which I definitely am not. I don't think a socialist can be a conservative. I don't think an atheist necessarily can be, or a witch can be a conservative. But by God, when you tell the left that they, that they can't take what they want to from women, they act just like an evangelical Christian from Coleman, Alabama. And they certainly do not want to hear it. And if you get it through, they will absolutely not acknowledge it. They won't. They won't. They will not acknowledge their hypocrisy. They, and of course, who, who wants to acknowledge that they're a hypocrite? Right. You know, and, certainly um, not would, a hypocrite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you know, I, I think there's a lot of narcissism and psychopathy on both extremes. Yes, because it takes it takes a lot of pride, a lot of willful ignorance and arrogance to to actually make a statement like that, to say that you deserve access to use someone's uterus, vagina, whatever, whether they want to go into that or not. And that's another issue that we've talked about. I'm very much against surrogacy mm -hmm. because it's all economics. People do it because they need to feed their children. The children they already have or young girls need to get through school. And anyone that has ever paid a surrogate, I just, it, when I hear of a celebrity that I used to like, and I, and I know that she's done that to another woman, I mean, I'll just lose all respect. It's just like, ew. The fact that the overwhelming majority of women who make a choice, air quote choice to be surrogate is doing so from economic necessity. Mm-hmm doesn't give credence to it being an equal choice no it's not an equal choice it's not a free choice what it actually is is a false dichotomy or it's an it's, an, it's one of those either or fallacies damned if you do damned if you don't catch 22 you, you, you use not numerous titles for what that is but there are so many things in society that women are told well you had a choice no no you really if, if it's if it's if it's a if it's an either or it's not a free choice if it's a choice made in coercion, it's not a choice. If it's a choice made where you only have very limited options and your options are basically starving or being homeless or putting yourself in undue stress, it's not a choice. And not to no. mention there's really no amount of money that can guarantee a woman's health. Right. Considering that, that the, the rates of women who die in childbirth 
Mm -hmm. um, that it's such a physically taxing experience and that it's that the the dangers of it are so great there really mm -hmm. is an amount of money mm -hmm. that that should be that that should be acceptable for that right regardless of how much it is and the fact that the united states has the number one I mean, we're number one statistically and maternal mortality for all industrialized nations yeah. is just disgusting. And the fact that our Catholic whore Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade because they are basically a Christian cult that ended up in power because the far right kept their eye on that ball while the left took their eyes off that ball to talk about other things. While continuing that, to fundraise enthusiastically. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Pretending like they gave a shit about us, about reproductive rights, about women. And let's be very clear. It will be the poor across the board that suffer the most from this. It will be Absolutely. the people who are underinsured or not insured. It will be women of color. It will be the poor of Appalachia. It will be immigrant women and mothers. They will be the ones who suffer from this. It will be teenage girls because we know that kids don't have rights. A, a lot of our laws pertaining to children, comes it, it comes directly from old English law. Talk about America being behind. There's no rights of the child here. This would be something that I would be interested to explore. Louisiana law based on being the only, mainly being the only state in the country that's based on Napoleonic law, the Napoleonic yeah. code, as opposed to the rest of the country, which is English common law. Well, that, well, the rest of the country, English common law does treat children like property. And I'm imagining that Napoleonic code would be even worse because women are also technically property still mm -hmm. and under the Napoleonic code. Um, when you were discussing the, the populations that would most be impacted um, and you said, you know, the poor Appalachian women. And I, I was reminded of a piece that I was reading from an incredibly uh, far, far left website yesterday um, that was talking about a presidential candidate appealing to the poor in Appalachia and basically saying that they were probably too busy smoking their meth pipes to pay attention. Yeah, that's uh, been a problem. And, and this is this is from a, 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 a new from a, an opinion site from the left. I know. Yeah. And um. Uh, uh, I would expect to see the same classism from an opinion site on the right. I would too. And, you know, this reminds me of a really good documentary that I think we should link and recommend to everybody. It's called Hillbilly. And there's a book that goes along with it. And it is called, it's by Elizabeth Kate. And I hope I'm pronouncing her last name right. Elizabeth C-A-T-T-E. What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia. Again, the title is What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia. And that book goes along with the documentary Hillbilly. And it is fantastic because a lot of it's just what you and I are talking about, Winter. Mm -hmm. It's about the Appalachian poor, about how they were forgotten by the left and why they have a hate on for the DNC. And both of us being Southern, and I know you've been more deep South, and, and I moved from Appalachia to the deep. I live just in the corner of Appalachia. I'm in North Alabama on the last mountain of Appalachia where it meets the deep South. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in that liminal space. So 
I can say that we have both seen the great hatred that the common person around here has for the DNC. And it is very warranted because they forgot the South. They yeah. forgot the heartland. Well, did they, they forget the it or did the they knowingly write it off? Yeah, they knowingly did. You are correct. It was very, very intentional. It was deliberate. And they do not care. I mean, if you try to engage any politician at the federal national level about any Southern or local issue, they, they don't fucking care. It was very deliberately done. It was thought, well, it, we are the poorest region, even more so than the Midwest because of reconstruction, because of what the history of the civil war, which was a very necessary war because it was necessary. And because of everything that happened afterward, the DNC, instead of really investing in the area and bringing people together, mm-hmm. decided it was either too much trouble or not worth it, or everyone here is just illiterate, which is not true. Because I'm sitting here as a woman who's been through graduate school, and I'm married to a physicist, and we live in Alabama. I've had discussions with my current husband, not the, the first husband mentioned in my intro, but the second go around, who's quite lovely. Um, he's from the UK. And we've had conversations comparing the devastation of Germany after World War One and the repercussions of the debts and devastation from the First World War leading to the economic strife that, that helped usher in the Nazi party for the destruction of the Second World War to the devastation brought upon the south from the civil war like uh, although like you said a necessary war to end whether whether this was the actual reason it was fought or not but to have the byproduct of the ending of slavery at least legally theoretically (laughs) um the economic conditions and the deprivations that the losing side of of a war is left with that allows for the cultivation of the dis- the discontent and the disenfranchisement that leads to the attitudes that the othering of and when when a national party basically writes off an entire region of the country because they think we're too stupid to understand i won't i i i you know that my 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 thinking is that they just don't think there's enough people who are smart enough to care and then act surprised when these great swaths of populations don't trust them or outright hate them it's yeah it's outright hatred you are correct that was the right way to say it it's outright hatred here for them and um you know it's 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 poor political practice Even if I didn't find it morally important, it's poor political practice. So no, that was very well said. And that that's a very smart analogy. For me, the desire to do this came from a point of uh, engaging in self-censorship and what I felt was silencing from the community, which turned that into you did a lot for a community that you did a lot for. A community that I did a lot for. Um, yeah. I mean, it- it was really, I mean, it was really personal what happened to you. From from people who claim to, you know, be friends and allies, from people that 
said that they knew me and liked me and respected what I did. And, and, and a lot of that was self-censorship because they're, uh, I, I feel comfortable saying that the, that certain aspects of that community are vengeful and spiteful and in a, in a difficult world and difficult times, the the desire the energy to to deal with that or confront it was just easier to to step back no definitely which circles back to the idea of how how you came up with the name the demonized Mm -hmm. um, how we talk about being outsiders and the knowledge that all of my life i've stepped back when the group of people, whether they functioned as individuals or a group, made it very clear that I was not one of them, mm-hmm. I stepped back. Um, and and that that's that just comes from a lifetime of being different and acknowledging the difference. Um, confronting it rather than ignoring it. So, and then talking to you over the course of our friendship, I've found it, found it um, striking how, how similar some of our experiences are Mm -hmm. in the, in the way that we've been treated are, are dealt with by people and in our reactions to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's very true. So it, yeah, I think that you know, it's it's both, you know, like I told you years ago, my first psychology class, Psych 101, I wrote that. We had to do a research paper and I did mine on something unusual and I entitled it The Culture of Women. And I actually coined that phrase. So if it was ever out there in the ether, it was originally mine. But, but the culture of women, and that's what I started calling it very early on at 17, 18, because I didn't fit in. And it had its own sort of dogma, just like being part of the catholic church just like like being forced raised to be raised catholic and not wanting that for yourself it's like you were because of your you know sex or whatever gender you were you part of this culture of women and i never wanted to be a part of that so and it kept cropping up in whatever i did whether i you know even going liberal and being because i never was a conservative just because i saw their behavior when i was a child and knew that's the way i don't want to be but I never fit into that group think and that, you know, and, and that the, the way, especially in the American South, the certain like, whether you want to call it the scarlet O'Hara mentality or whatever, the way certain women behave, especially white women, white women of upper middle class and wealth, the way that they behave kind of sets the stage for everybody else. And you either go along with it or you pander to it or you aspire to be in it or you just don't. Yes. And you do your own thing. And it's really awkward like the the interesting thing is, you know, I'm not comparing notes on this, but a lot of times I would actually try to hang out with international students 
African-American students or students from other communities because I was avoiding that certain type of white chick. Yes. And I was doing it very deliberately and on purpose, not just because I wanted to know about different types of people, because I find people different ways of life and different foods and different, like, you know, I'm just a fan of food, but I, I, different things like that. I find very neat. But the fact that I was really trying to avoid like the white girl thing, because it seemed like no matter if it was the, oh my God, the sorority girls, which I had, which actually they did like me in college. They were the nicer ones to me. Or whether it was the young Republican girls who were like, you know, I'm going to marry me a man. I'm going to get my missus degree. Or or if it was the feminists, the liberal feminists, which I hung out with for a while, they were all just, it was it was white girl club. It was all some vert, and you still found that henpecking order, that culture of women, the same culture of women that we talked about earlier, the boomer women that built glass ceilings back over us. And um, it was always the same fucking shit. So the same thing over and over. It was like Groundhog's Day. Like it was just white, white, white girl. It would no matter how they dressed it. Mm-hmm. And it's something that, you know, haunted me because it, it did impact, you know, I did everything right. I worked my way through college. I had managerial experience. I had administration experience. I had a bachelor's, you know, I, I, I had decent degrees, decent subjects, public administration, you know, when you talk about policy writing and all that, but also experience to back it up in actual public administration, working for colleges. And because of the way that women treated me and the fact that I wasn't part of their yeah, yeah, yeah group, you know, the yeah, 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 talk about each other behind their back and play the passive aggressive game and do the hidden picking order. Like I was like, nope, I was just straight up. And, And I knew how to network in a very healthy way. And I guess women just want to go in the back door, be underhanded. But no, I mean, I have no problem going up and meeting somebody, introducing myself. And But it, it's just weird. Like, I've never been good at clicks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just, it's not that I did anything to them or didn't do anything to them. I just treated them like I would anybody else. And they just, they just didn't, couldn't like it because they knew I wasn't going to play the game. Right. That's the, that's the thing. You didn't treat them differently than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And that's the expectation. Yeah. Yeah. Is, I, is to worship or, or admire or praise or conspire with or gossip with or yeah. Yeah. And I always kind of maintain this rule for myself because I, saw so much bullshit by living in that small town when I was, you know, in middle school age. And I just always had this, this principle that if don't say anything behind someone's back that you wouldn't say to their face. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's very much anti what I call the culture of women. Very. Yes. They do the exact opposite. They talk about each other like they're dogs and, and the women are the nicest superficially to the women they hate the most often. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just can't play like that. I mean, I, I know how to be civil and I know how to be neutral and I'm just even, but I'm not going to sit there and go, Oh, Hey, how are you? Right. You know, I'm not going to do that bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't got time for that. I ain't got time for that. Life is way too short. Do you think that's um, a Southern woman thing? Or do you think that that's a woman thing to varying degrees? I think the way women have been so cheated, like so disenfranchised and so historically 
subjugated. I think it's a woman thing to various degrees in different cultures, but I think it manifests differently. Like in the South, we have this, oh, bless her heart. Everyone knows what that means, you know? (laughs) And then in the Mideast, it it really manifests because, you know, I've had friends who from Iraq or Bangladesh or whatever, whatever, you know, whether it's Ring of Fire or the Mideast or whatever area, that part of the world in the East, they'll tell me stories about how women, when they backstab women, can get another woman killed just by rumors. Yes. In some real strict Islamic country. Yeah. But that's kind of the way you can socially slaughter somebody here in the American South by doing that too. You know, and you used to be able in the West to get people killed, to keep people burnt at the stake, you know, by just making up bullshit. So women have all never had each other's backs in the way that men do. And a lot of that is the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. But just like I said, and I've written in essays about this that will never be published because they're too politically incorrect. You can't use the excuse anymore that the, that, that the patriarchy made her do it. Like the patriarchy, they keep using that excuse in, in particular, feminists, feminists of today, whether they're third, fourth wave, whatever they're calling themselves, you know, you don't get to use the excuse the patriarchy made or do it. And they don't get to get out of jail free card for, you know, for the human rights violation like that. I was on a campaign against adoption trafficking. Rich white women don't don't get a excuse because, oh, my goodness, I'm infertile. I'm going to take another woman's baby. They don't get that excuse. You know, w- women don't get a pass for, you know character assassinating other women just because they don't like the way her face looks, you know, just dumb shit like that. Like you don't get any excuse. Well, I have to be this way because I was raised in a patriarchal world. And some of the most elite feminists will make excuses like that for people. And it's like, uh, no, no. I remember back in the nineties, um, what I called the first wave of political correctness. And I, I, disagree with the idea that political correctness means politeness oh i do too um i i don't need to be politically correct to be civil and polite to people and recognizing someone's flaws is not politically incorrect which is is not the way i think that that most people see it and Mm -hmm. i remember there was a wave of campus policies designed to um, deal with, you know, with rape on college campuses. And I remember early 90s um, hearing about a college campus that, and I I could, I could Google and look it up, um, that basically implemented uh, a Nine bond, nine binding policy that any sexual activity whatsoever must be fully and verbally consented to. Otherwise, it was rape. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, well, that takes all the spontaneity out of sex, which is supposed to be pleasurable. It takes, uh, it inhibits female sexuality. And it inhibits female power and voice. And it does absolutely nothing to actually address the cause of of rape on college campuses, which is rapists. And it, it struck me as so backwards to think that the culture was such that two college kids, you know, clumsily groping each other needed to be may i touch your breast yes you may may i uh 
kiss the back of your neck. Yes, you may. And then not not and and then saying that a woman would be incapable of stopping a man and saying, no, I'm not comfortable with this. No. It, it just it felt very disempowering in the in the guise of being giving women voice and it was done by i'm assuming well-meaning feminists but infantile you know basically treating women as powerless does indeed lead to that state of being powerless of being powerless yeah. well it's, it's it's the same thing the patriarchy does yeah it treats you like you know it basically treats women like walking infants or something and um it's just it, again it's, it's thinking you're trying to be oh so pro woman but you're thinking within the confines of that patriarchal subconscious where you know the way you look out at other yourself and other women is already a blueprint there. You know, you're not doing anything new. Yes. Yes. And the, what you were saying about this, you know, I, 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 the talk about feminism, we, you know, you said that, that we can't, Western women absolutely should not um blame everything on the patriarchy when they're willing participants in the patriarchy. Yeah. Especially like a certain type of limousine liberal. Yes. And you know, the, the, whether you want to call it neoliberal limousine liberal and or wokest, and those are different things, but overarching overlapping and Republican women, conservative women, they willingly there. I see them as one and the same. I don't see one any better than the other. When you've got like, for example, I'm thinking of an earlier episode of Bill Maher this year, when you got some woman who goes on there, she's some idiotic sports blogger, but has, somehow has a master's, but she's sports blogging about men's sports. She's saying she's basically, she's calling herself pro-choice, but she's anti-choice after like 15 weeks and talking about how she basically adoption traffics someone's a child from South America, this kid that she's raised. And she's just so grateful she just got this baby because she couldn't have one how she just so grateful she just couldn't imagine life without this kid and 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 uh, and mara is like well of course you wouldn't imagine life because you wouldn't have the kids so there wouldn't be anything to miss right that's just a Maybe stupid that. emotional yeah. appeal it's a stupid statement say so i just couldn't imagine and and how and how did you get this international adoption was it like the documentary poverty inc or the the netflix expose on adoption trafficking I mean, how, how exactly did you did you go to a country, a poor country in South America? What charity in quotes did you go through to get this woman's baby? And she's like, oh, their abortion was legal for like 20 something weeks. I'm just so grateful she didn't have one. And I just wanted to, 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 to say to her in her face, I couldn't because she's inside the TV. It's a television <laughs> show. But I want to say to her, bitch, the woman didn't have access to abortion, even though it was legal. Right. I mean, even in countries where it's legal, especially in like developing world countries, there's so many blocks put in place for poor women to prevent them from having abortion, especially in these Catholic countries. Yes. So, you know, and, and then, and then she sits there and she's talking about, well, but I'm, but I'm pro-choice. No, 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 bitch, you ain't. And then um, there's a constitutional attorney who's really articulate. I and mean, he's been on the show before on real time before. 
And he's 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 trying to draw like a legal parallel, talking about legal, like the legal statute, like how you could use this to make an argument against gay marriage or against guns. He's basically doing what people who study law and who know law do. Mm-hmm. And he's showing the, the web outline, how they're going to go, like the strategy they could take, Republicans could take. And he's talking very, you know, in a very practical manner that mm-hmm. everyone can understand. And she can't stand it because he's actually making a valid point that she may just not agree with. And she grabs his hand and interrupts him and says, oh, be honest, be honest. Oh, you're the horrible straw man. And several times over a fallacy grabs his, telling this guy who, who is basically explaining the facts, legal, legal strategy. Mm-hmm. And this emotional appeal, supposedly educated woman is sitting here being a passive aggressive. See you next Tuesday type. And the thing is, is that that's the culture of women. And that's how it plays out in the public sphere on a TV show with men. So it also hurts men. Yes. What she did was a very patriarchal move. Yes. As a woman playing within that culture of women, manipulating the patriarchal system so she could be, you know, a top dog. Yeah, she top dog. All right. But, you know showing her entire ass on TV behaving that way. And everyone who's sitting here watching that's that's a woman that knows what that is. It's like, oh shit, there ain't, there ain't no way these guys can call it out. Right. You know, we have to be able to call out women like that in society that play dirty and um, use whatever, you know, underhanded gaslighting <laughs> means they can to, to knock down facts and logic and reason i a few years ago uh i was it was in a facebook group and there was the chorus of feminists who basically said that we shouldn't blame bad mothers for abuse because the patriarchy made them do it Mm-hmm. And I said that uh, there are absolutely cases where an abused woman will abuse her children, uh, mm-hmm. either at the behest of a man or because that's her outlet from his abuse. There, so there are circumstances where women who ordinarily wouldn't be cruel or abusive to their children will be within the dynamic of a relationship with a man right however my mother was not one of those women my Mm. mother was not in a relationship my father they were my parents were divorced now they apparently they were in a relationship but there was no there was no man figure in my home and she was more than capable of being narcissistically cruel and abusive all on her own. Mm-hmm. And she would try to blame it on her father or her brothers or her boss. But she was an independent adult woman with a child. And at some point, the excuses rang really hollow. And these women who were insistent on blaming these feminists who were insistent on blaming 
bad behavior from women on men were telling me that my my lived experiences weren't valid. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Demonized Podcast with your hosts, Amber and Winter. Please check out our website at thedemonized.com for more information, links mentioned in this podcast, and upcoming episodes.